Hey there, it's Zach, your friendly neighborhood podcast editor. Just dropping in here at the beginning to let you know that we have uh, kind of switched things up a little bit here. We had originally planned to start our new series on science fiction and fantasy movies. Um, but then I don't know if you've been watching the news or anything, but we're in the middle of a global pandemic. And since this is a science and religion podcast, we thought it would be a good idea to reach out to somebody who actually knew what they were talking about and um, talk about this whole coronavirus thing that's happening around the world. Uh, so Ian reached out to one of his colleagues and in a profoundly wonderful act of irony, interviewed him while also trying to be faithful to social distancing and all of that. So if Ian sounds like he's talking to us from the other side of the world, that's because they are recording in the same room, but also a couple of feet apart from each other so that they don't end up spreading anything. So it turns out that proper hygiene techniques make for really bad recording techniques. Just a heads up. After this episode, we will start releasing our Down the Wormhole Goes to the Movies series, which, you know, to be honest, most of us are stuck looking for good movies to watch these days anyway, so couldn't come at a better time. Anyway, back to your regularly scheduled podcast. This has been in the literature, the, the fact that there was a human-adapted, bat-hosted SARS cousin in the wild. And he, among many, had been publishing papers saying, hey, look, this is out there. Look out in the open literature. But I've seen papers warning of the bat virus adapting very well to human receptors as early as 2013. So I think the relationship between science and people in the federal government who can do something about these things has, has eroded. You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are Rachel Jackson, Rabbi at Agudas Israel Congregation, Hendersonville, North Carolina. And my favorite indoor activity is building Lego with my son. My name is Adam Pryor. I teach at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. Uh, my favorite indoor activity is to read. I'm Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and my indoor activity of choice is going to be finally knocking out some of the books on my to-read list that's been slowly growing for the past entire life of mine. My name is Ian Benz, Associate Professor of Elementary Science Education at UNC Charlotte, and one of my favorite activities is to also build Legos with my children. Our guest today is a colleague of mine at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. In 2012, he joined the faculty of UNC Charlotte as the Carol Grotness Belk Distinguished Professor of Bioinformatics and Genomics and Director of Bioinformatics Research. He is also the co-director of the Rybarsky Center for Visual Analytics and an elected director of the Board of the North Carolina Bi Biotechnology Center. He received a Bachelor of Science degree in Biology from the University of Michigan in 1998 and a PhD in Zoology from the University of Florida in 1995. He worked as a postdoctoral fellow from 1996-1999 and a principal investigator from 2000-2002 at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. He then joined the faculty of the College of Medicine at The Ohio State University in 2003, where he originated the field of mapping pathogen genetic data in concert with geography and host animals. He has served as a national principal investigator in the Tree of Life program of the National Science Foundation and has had several DOD awards to understand the spread of pathogens. Currently, he works with NIH support on the genomic underpinnings of regenerative medicine. He has advised the White House, the Pentagon, the Interagency Risk Assessment Consortium, and testified at both houses of Congress on emerging infectious diseases. I'd like to welcome Dr. Daniel Janis to the show today. Oh, thanks very much. So, Dan. Welcome. Dan, do you want to call you Dan or do you want us to call you Dr. Dan's fine. Yeah. So, Dan, if you don't mind answering the question, what is your favorite indoor activity before we get started? Well, as of late, it's analyzing uh, genomic data out of uh, SARS-CoV-2, but uh, <laughs> I have to eat too. So I, I took the indoor time to break out the slow cooker and made corned beef yesterday, which was mm. great. Ooh. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Well, um, so Dan, we obviously asked you uh, to join us today just because of 
all of the changes going on in, in the country and in the world dealing with the coronavirus, COVID-19. And so, you know, I sent you a few things the other day, but we'll kind of go through that and allow the questions to go as, as they go. Great. So if we can kind of start off, I think the first thing I asked you is about just kind of telling us a little bit about the coronavirus in general. So some history around it. We'll start there and then we'll kind of go with that. Okay. So kind of starting at the present and going backwards, this is, so we're calling it in the lab, we're calling it SARS-2 really, because it's a very close relative of the original SARS, which is an acronym that stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, which is a coronavirus that emerged out of bats in China in 2002-2003. In between SARS-2 and SARS-1 was MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus, which emerged in the Middle East. And it's come out of bats as well, fundamentally, but it infected humans and camels uh, almost as a complex. So MERS was actually quite confusing. SARS-1, people thought, and you'll still read, that it infected civets before humans, but it really went back to human, but it's been controversial. SARS-2 has really clarified that. SARS-2 has dismissed all the bat deniers, and it's clearly a bat-to-human direct infection, and it works better and is much more transmissible than any of the others. So just for clarification because of naming... So we in the public you know, used to only hear about coronavirus, and then they named it COVID-19, or novel coronavirus. They named it COVID-19. But you're saying you as, and, and other researchers still refer, refer to it more as SARS-2 instead of... Yeah, in part that's the name we use in the lab to get our story straight. But SARS-CoV-2, or novel coronavirus, is the virus itself. Okay. Okay. COVID-19 is the disease it causes. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So just Zach and Rachel, I'm going to keep going with what we have here and, and obviously interject um, around it. So just so people know, uh, Dan and I got to know each other several years ago. Uh, we asked him to participate on a panel discussion for the Science Festival, North Carolina Science Festival, around the film Contagion, which is kind of interesting. So that's kind of how we got to know each other. And then we would periodically just bump into each other and start talking about you know ways we can collaborate. We've submitted a few grants together looking at how we can combat false information around uh, things like vaccines. And uh, I feel like that's another reason why I really wanted to have you here is because there's a lot of false information out there about this uh, right now um, and ways we can combat that. And I think we'll kind of get through that. But I actually want to, as we talk about that, kind of get into one of the next questions. And this is coming from Zach about why why is it that there are so many different types of tests out there? So when you see the testing being done in other countries, especially like a country like South Korea and how many tests they're able to do every, every day, it's significantly more than what we could do, right? And so it does seem like each country needs their own type thing, but is that actually accurate? Um, I can't speak to what's happening inside each country very well. Um, what I can speak to is the so, sort of the sequence of events okay. that allowed the U.S. to slow down the U.S. rollout of testing. Anything you do in the lab is a, a research experiment is less regulated than a clinical test, right? right? So there's strict regulation on the materials and, the, and the, the people who can do that kind of test, a clinical test. And the materials were difficult to source um, for a long time. So they did do some... In the late February, some special permissions for labs to get up, more labs to get up to speed, academic medical centers to create their own tests. This is all in the U.S. context. And with the president's emergency declaration on Friday that, you know, these emergency declarations at the state level and the federal level we've seen don't mean there's necessarily chaos in the streets that we're responding to. It means these are tools of government that allow us to flick some switches to loosen up regulations, for example, or free up funding, for example, from emergency funds, such that other major pharmaceutical companies could uh, start to develop this test and have rapid approvals. And Roche was the first one to step in. So mm -hmm. I think, I hope, really, really this time, there's enough testing. <laughs> right. But we can't just like take the one that works over in South Korea and import that over. Like, 
No, it's, the it's regulations about... did not did not permit okay. that at the time, and okay. we would rather have a domestic industry. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but the World Health Organization offered like half a million tests or something like that, and what we we rejected that, right? I don't know. I've heard that, but I haven't. In this trade dispute, I haven't gotten independent corroboration, but there's sure. some there's some rumors to those effects. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're not our best but, but, selves when but, we do. Yeah, yeah. But the, the Roche story was put out in the press conference by the president subsequent to the emergency declaration. Okay. So that, that's a documented thing. What is that story? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? The Roche got FDA permission in like 48 hours to, to create a new test kit. Okay. And manufacture it at scale that's compliant with the FDA. So once they get that kind of permission, is it hard for them to then build the test and manufacture it? No, I, I, the test itself is not It's not that hard. I mean, okay. a, an academic laboratory could act, could emulate it, right? right? We have the machinery and everything here. It's just doing it in the to the letter of the law. Like for, a GMP standing. And, yeah, yeah, for clinical yeah. compliance. Yeah. Okay. And like I said, uh, I may have told you this too, Rachel was a bench scientist, so mm-hmm. she kind of understands lab stuff a whole lot more than I do. <laughs> so... Like I, I read this weekend too, there was talk of a company in North Carolina, I can't remember which one now, out of Burlington, LabCorp. Yeah. I guess it said that they they hope to have 5,000, be able to have, be able to test 5,000 people a day by the end of this week. Yeah, LabCorp or uh, uh, Quest would step in with the labor and the machinery that's to scale on the, on that end. Mm-hmm. But without without all the tests, without right. all the, what we call the reagents, the, right. the chemicals for the tests, uh, that labor was... Not being used appropriately or adequately. So, so I think, um, and if I may jump in here, there are there's two different pieces here. You have the 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 what the patient has put in their mouth or in their nose or the actual testing piece, right? You have that particular need. Well, once you have that, you then have to send it to a laboratory, which has the ability to extract what else is in there, which is a a different kind of reagent. And then that also requires different. So you have to first create the create the test and then you have to send it to a different place that can read the test, which requires people, machinery and different chemicals. Right. So Mm -hmm. those are two different areas. And so LabCorp from my understanding, is doing the second part of that. But they're not the ones actually creating the test, which is what Roche is doing or what these other companies are doing. So uh, so LabCorp stepping in is wonderful, but that they're just saying, once you get us the tests, we'll be able to give you answers. Mm. But we have to get the tests to the people first. Is that so these up tests a are bit? way more sophisticated than like peeing on a stick and seeing if you have COVID-19. Right, okay. right. The, uh, and the... Um, sort of bottleneck was the reagent to do the extraction was the limited um, piece. Okay. So, so basically what happens, right? So I think most of us have had a flu test, right? Or like a nasal swab, they, or the back of your throat, right? Well, you've got your own DNA in there and that just mucks everything up. So you just have to find that tiny little piece, right? That is not you. And then you have to make that a little bit larger and see, oh, this is what we're extracting from it. And you have to find that one particular, um, it's not quite needle in a haystack, but you know, you're looking, frankly, going back to Lego, you're looking for that one little Lego that's stuck in the carpet, <laughs> right? That clear Lego that you don't, that you know it's there when you step on it. Um, and then you have to make it bigger so that you can actually figure out, is this real or is this not real? So that, and then that takes a chemical to make that happen. Well, what happens if you don't have that chemical? So that was that was the bottleneck that. And Dan, please tell correct me if I'm uh, saying miss saying anything here. No, that was good. The 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 one twist I'd put on it is um, yeah. the the virus is made of RNA, so we extract Not that DNA. RNA and we convert it to DNA because the machinery to detect DNA is so much better than detecting RNA. Much so, better. Yeah. I didn't realize you could convert RNA to DNA. It's amazing, huh? Yeah. We, can you convert it to PDF now too? I, 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 like, Don't man. laugh. That's how I. That's yeah. I just deal with them electronically. That's awesome. <laughs> that's what bioinformatics is for. I it's love mesh it. cleaner. <laughs> there are PDF is not good though because we want we want it in you know those boring programs like text yeah, pad or yeah. Notepad or the one in Max is BB Edit. That's what we want. We don't want any formatting. We just 
Just give me A, C's, G's, and T's, or U's in RNA, please. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For those that don't know, those are the things, the, the molecules that actually make up DNA. I saw that you posted on Facebook if anyone had any questions. So I didn't know if you were getting to those questions, those couple of questions, but it looks like you had your own as well. Well, I, I just wanted to, while we're talking about the DNA, just doing a little bit of reading into uh, the, the papers you've published and the work that you've done. That seems like something that, that you've done quite a bit of research into, correct? The, yeah, yeah. We've the, been working on coronaviruses sort of, for a long time. Yeah, yeah. and and so y- you've developed a... well been a part of developing a a software that helps to track this and to come up with forecasts of what what we might be able to expect in the future from these sorts of outbreaks? Well, let's let's start at the beginning a little bit. Yeah. Fundamentally, what we do is build evolutionary trees of uh, sequence information, whether it be DNA or RNA. And that allows us to tell the sequence of events. And one of the events we've been most interested in is what hosts these lineages of virus have passed through in their evolutionary history. So one of the things we've did is when they've been able to discover early on that SARS-1, for example, fundamentally came out of bats, went into humans, and then later was infecting civets, but it wasn't important to the the fundamentals of the how the virus got into the mammalian population. We can also take that information and usually we print that information in a scientific journal, like a PDF, like you mentioned, as a branching <laughs> diagram. It looks like a family tree, right? We can take that branching diagram and contort it, and the verb is to project it into a globe like Google Earth we used at the time. And it looks like, it, you know, you're, you open the New York Times, you'll see a map, right, with dots mm-hmm. on the map where the cases are. Mm-hmm. Well, with the genetic information especially the evolution of those genetic changes, we can connect all those dots. And so I'm really careful about not using words like predict and forecast, although hmm. journalists do. We're not quite at predicting the weather. But we can use educated guesses. Not there like, are weathermen. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, if, you know, the virus is moving from point A to point B and you're point C, better get ready. And if it changes from point A to point B to become resistant to, you know, we worked on Tamiflu for the case of influenza viruses. If it looks like the strains next to you are resistant to Tamiflu, you better come up with a better idea. So I would say it's more, you know, educated guessing is a good way to say, you know, leveraging all the information and putting it in a geospatial context Hmm. is what we've been doing. How often does a virus like this uh, uh, change and evolve and adapt? Like, are you, we're looking... We're looking at this right now. Is there any chance that, like, tomorrow it's going to suddenly uh, adapt to be airborne or to be resistant to something? It is airborne, and it's not resistant to anything. Uh, coronavirus isn't because we don't have any uh, approved uh, antivirus. Well, that's convenient. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, backing up a little bit again here, remember SARS-1 emerged in 2002, and the machinery to sequence it took longer, right? Hmm. So SARS emerged in 2002, and it wasn't until like March uh, 2003, two, two months or before we had the sequence, two, three months. Uh, hmm. it's, it's documented in my paper. We got this virus in something like a week or two after the Chinese isolated it. We got, the sequence was shared worldwide, okay? Mm-hmm. And now the sequencing step is not even the limit, rate limiting step. It's so fast once you isolate the virus that the isolation process itself is is the rate limiting step. Okay, so back to that backdrop. SARS, we got data, you know, a few months after it emerged, it had been spreading around the world, and other places turned on their sequencers. So we started getting data out of Toronto. We started getting data out of Europe and so forth, and it did have a little time to evolve, such that we could build this family tree without mutations. Uh, we can't build the family tree. Right, And so SARS-2 has been observed so quickly and so rapidly around the world and the data shared, which is great. I mean, I, I love to see the international cooperation. 
but the mutations are one not there and the few that are there don't have a clear pattern what we call a a phylogenetic signal or better yet a, a hierarchy of mutations such that we can build the evolutionary tree so any mapping programs out there you see are using other kinds of evidence our calculations on the current SARS-2 data show that that tree comes out like a comb it has no structure because when you analyze the enough scenarios there are enough conflicting scenarios in the data when you ask for what we call the consensus of those when we merge all those results the tree structure goes to a comb so beware of all those sites right now we'll we'll, we'll definitely put something out when, we, when it's scientifically valid in our hands but the other ones are not valid right. so i'm assuming then that raises the complexity of studying this thing and trying to figure out ways to combat it? Well, one of the things we've done is go back, okay? So right now, we're just looking at all coronaviruses known. We, and there's plenty of changes in mutations, insertions, deletions, rearrangements of the genome. So we're going back to all the other coronaviruses that have been important agriculturally. There's delightful names for these things like porcine epidemic diarrhea virus. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like my one. my advisor always loved that one. And then uh, that's why they run on toilet paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, <laughs> and bovine coronaviruses and avian coronaviruses and so forth. So we made we made this giant tree. A postdoc named Dennis Machado in our lab is leading that. So we have a two thousand uh, genome tree. Jeez. That includes SARS one, SARS two, and MERS. And so we're, we're trying to put this this sort of global view on it right now, and understand how many times humans have been uh, infected by these things. And it turns out it's, it's upwards of 10, 9 or 10 right now. Hmm. And, hmm. and that's just sort of the initial incursion into humans. If you add the camel human data and MERS, it was just spinning back and forth between camels and humans. And that, that makes some sense. These people are living with their camels, drinking their milk, riding them, maybe sleeping in the same barn and so forth. I'm glad and, you described that as spitting back and forth. Oh, yeah. Adam's here. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I don't Sorry. Have... I, hi, my name's Adam. I just, you know, I, I only say not important things. So there are coronaviruses, if you look at this history, that before SARS, that have infected humans, and they've been somewhat moderate infections, like 30% of human colds are, are caused by other coronaviruses. Okay. So, um, Zach, you had a question there about how is it that... Yeah, about how diseases and viruses jump from species to species? Yeah, so what happens is that um, the viruses vary randomly. So try not to anthropomorphize this. And they, they're, just okay. hitching a, yeah, they're just hitching a ride, right? So they're hanging out in bats or hanging out in pigs or hanging out in whatever. And it seems SARS-2, the, if you look at the crown of the coronavirus, the spikes on the crown, there's a, actually a protein called spike. And that's sort of like the key, right? And your cells have something called ACE2, which is the lock, the receptor. That matched well enough. The bat-hosted virus got lucky enough to, to get into human cells by tweaking its uh, spike, right? Hmm. That's a pretty fuzzy match. It wasn't a very good match. But really what's scary about SARS-2 is that match is very good. Uh, this clearly went directly from bats to humans. And it's such a good match that the virus quickly started to go human to human, and it's very transmissible. My wife's a real virologist, not a bioinformatics virologist. And she said, because it's so transmissible and because this spikes such a good match to the human receptor, you need very much fewer particles of SARS-2 yeah. than you would need of SARS-1. So, okay. yeah, that, that makes sense. And that's not experimentally validated, but that's the line of thinking that can can help us think about yeah. what's been happening SARS-1, MERS to SARS-2. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is an extraordinary set of events. You know. Yeah, I wouldn't think there's much that's experimentally validated yet. Yeah. Papers are coming um, out. There's also an infodemic. Of course, <laughs> yeah. <so>. Yes. <laughs> and they're, they're, what's what's really concerning to me, and this I wouldn't characterize as misinformation, but you know, scientists are ambitious, right? And when I grew up, you had to submit your paper for peer review, and it was sealed until other scientists read it and validated and critiqued it, and sometimes were very uh, harsh. And yeah. some things never saw the light of day. 
nowadays, especially younger scientists, they feel like they can just put their PDFs uh, online before it's been critiqued. Uh, young people mm. sometimes yeah. have pushed me to do it. I don't know. I think it's a double-edged sword because if you're wrong, but media picks up on it. Right. Yep. And we start to do things that are scientifically not validated. That's very risky. So it's there's a tension even within science. Um, yep. Yeah. And there's already this distrust of of science yeah. out there in this country, and we saw this so much in especially I mean still now, but especially just a week ago or the week before, where they'd say, "Oh, these scientists again! They're just they're, they're freaking out about this. You know, the, the the flu kills more people than this. They they're can't trust the CDC here. Just mm-hmm. take some essential oils and you'll be fine." <laughs> and it it almost seems like silvers. every time that we're wrong, silver stuff. Silver stuff? Yeah, someone was talking about if you take the uh, silver. Yeah. Whatever, I forgot. It was one of the big. Yeah. Well, I think snake oil salesmen have been around for for millennia, right? But Yeah, but now they have multi-level marketing snake yeah, oil salesmen. the internet. And so what, what's been interesting <laughs> is how rapidly we went from wash your hands to, oh, gosh, you know. Yeah. We're, we're even using the word quarantine. Which yeah. has been on the books. The U.S. government can use it. It is constitutional. I had to check. But during H1N1, for example, we done we done a lot of pandemic preparedness. Then there's a little different different backdrop there as a side story. But we, when we did media, we are instructed not to use the word quarantine. Only use the word social distancing. We were oh. also instructed not to say take a day off because the business community That's... wouldn't like it. And all that has changed with this. So there are some good yeah. things with this one, right? And the rapidity with which all the naysayers had to stop talking has been impressive. So I'm very proud of us so far. Let's yeah. hope for the best. And that is a good point because I have noticed, you know, you did have people saying up till like last week, individuals who have a huge following just come out saying things like this is nothing. Don't even worry about washing your hands and stuff. And there, while there are still some doing that, you are right that it seems like that has died down some. It's still there, but not as prevalent. It's like a switch went off. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. Um, I just wanted to to follow up on Dan. I I was just starting to read um, a book called Spilling Over. Mm-hmm. Uh, came out oh, seven-ish years ago. I'm not exactly sure. Which is talking exactly about the idea that how do we get something from the animal kingdom into the human population. And I wondered if you knew about that book, if you had any comments on it. Um, I've heard of it. I haven't read it, but I do know the concept. And there was a, mm-hmm. a really good NPR story on goats and soda like two, three weeks ago. And the uh-huh. scientist in the story is named Kevin Oliveall. I, I know him. He, and and this has been in the literature, the, the fact that there was a human adapted bat hosted SARS cousin in the wild. And right. he, among many, including Dr. Barrick, who was on Charlotte Talks this morning from Chapel Hill, had been publishing papers saying, hey, look, this is out there, um, you know, look out in the open literature. But uh, again, that pandemic preparedness story I want to tell in a minute, but back to the spillover per se, Kevin Oliveall would go into bat caves in China and, and with his uh, local colleagues, they would find like water bottles and beer bottles in the caves and say, oh, somebody's hanging out in here. Hmm. Yeah. And then they would go test the local populace, and sure enough, they were what's called seropositive for this mm-hmm. virus. Their, their body had seen it and made an immune reaction mm-hmm. to it. So mm-hmm. that's a spillover. Spillover mm-hmm. has been happening, and they published that. I've seen papers as far as the seropositive paper published in 2018, but I've seen papers warning of the bat virus adapting very well to human receptors as early as 2013. Okay. So... Um, I think the relationship between science and, and you know, people in uh, the federal government who can do something about these things has, has eroded. You know? Yeah. So yeah, I go to I, Washington as much as I can, but it's been less frequently than it was in, in the past. In H1N1 and before, is in like two, 2007, we had federal money. In, I worked in Columbus, Ohio, at Ohio State at the time. We had federal money to do pandemic preparedness, and it was really well spent because this was 07. The pandemic came in 09. Nobody knew, but we knew we were due. And it was it was great. It was, you know, college professors, cops, firemen, local public health officials, 
uh, doing tabletop exercises. You know, everything that we just had to scramble to put together haphazardly this time, we had prepared for years last time. You know? Right. So, That's amazing. so can I ask, yeah. right? Like, because I, I 100% agree. Those, those sort of tabletop encounters are so important to helping people recognize good versus bad information. Right. So uh, mm -hmm. uh, I'll, I'll describe my encounter before trying not to go out and about as much with a, with a, with a local elderly person who is trying very deeply to convince me that only those with type one diabetes, not type two, were the ones who are really at risk, uh, increased <laughs> risk because of coronavirus. And, and he'd read this on the annals of the internet and was, you know, probably ready to shoot himself with silver soon. I think he's a werewolf, but um, if we like, if we if we really want to respect social distancing, how do we? What 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 do you think is important in terms of how we should be communicating, working to generate those sort of tabletop encounters that are so formative for people? Well, I think one of the most important things about public health communications is develop one clear message, and everybody around academia, government deliver that message. And that's some of the problems with the federal government's rollout of this is there were, there were different messages from different bodies in government and it wasn't clear. And that leads to that mistrust, right? And there's different messages at different levels of severity. So it's one clear, simple message has to be delivered. And if it's delivered by a scientist, they have the credibility to say, well, conditions have changed. Now we're gonna do something more severe and if it's delivered by a politician, they don't want a flip-flop, right? But a scientist can, can bring that nuance with credibility, I think. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what's important about those eggs. I, th I wonder how much... Um, so I live in Western North Carolina. Um, we have a particular political bend here. And I was on my way to someone's house um, so I'm a rabbi right now, and that means I go to people's houses sometimes. Um, and I was driving there. We have about a one-acre outdoor flea market. And when I drove by there at one o'clock in the afternoon yesterday on Sunday, it was packed, shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder packed. And I, I, I wonder how much of that is, eh, it's not exactly here in Western North Carolina, uh, the virus, or ah, they don't know what they're talking about, or I just don't care, right? And and how I wonder if there's a communication, right? As you were just saying, Dan, that who is the person communicating it and what that means? So could be a mixture of all anecdotal. three. Yeah, you would have to survey people, I suppose. I yeah, I remember you know watching the cases emerge in Seattle and it was maybe what was it three Sundays ago when they detected community transmission in yeah. California and Seattle. I was like, oh, okay, game over. We're not gonna and I think <laughs> the message that we're gonna be perfect and detain all cases in quarantine that, you know, we re, we had to repatriate the Americans, but we're gonna keep them in quarantine. But travel was open otherwise, especially from, from Italy. That, that perfection was possible, I think that was a, that was a dangerous message. And yeah. um, that was one of the first shoes to drop. I keep joking, I'm out of shoes. You know, so many shoes to drop. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, and Amazon has all kinds of shortages right now. So yeah, you know. yeah. So <laughs> those, those I, I looked at the U.S. map the other day, and yeah. I saw West Virginia has no documented cases. Still none. So you yeah. could... You could have the attitude that you can run for the hills, you know. Um, but does that mean there are no cases there or they just haven't been detected? No way. I think they have not yeah. been detected. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, that you had Alabama, too. You had, you know, you had, it was interesting when some of those last few states, other than West Virginia, it was states that tend to be more rural and have, um, you know, just are not as affluent. Well, they don't have a major airport either. It's going right. to be... Right. JFK Montana. and L LAX before it is <laughs> yeah. Montana. Yeah. 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 So that's well documented. We saw that in H1912.
so you say that this particular virus is a super great fit for all of our lungs and uh, what what not. It's the the other half of our Velcro, and that's why it's spreading so quickly. But you complete me. <laughs> unfortunately. <Sorry. laughs> um, Poor taste. <laughs> but then, uh, what I what I keep hearing from people, even now, even while we're canceling things and distancing, and everyone's running for the hills, is that it's still not that dangerous. Like, well, there's mm-hmm. there's barely any deaths. I mean, why it why are we so are, worried about this? Right. If you're a kid, um, and you're healthy, there's a very small death rate. Uh, right. Let's say 0.1 percent or something. But if you're 80 and or have underlying health conditions, your death rate's like 15%. So the, the demographics and your underlying health conditions are crucial here. Right. Are there other diseases like that? Yeah, yeah. Um, influences like that. But it could, the, the curve can look differently. A lot of, lot of uh, influences attack children. And what was scary about 1918 H1N1 is the curve had a W in it. it had, you know, it had high mm. infant, high elderly mortality but a bump in the middle with healthy young people. So that that was that was, that's that that's something we should be definitely watching for. It doesn't seem to be occurring with coronavirus SARS-2. Hmm. But um, even H1N1 was a benign H1N1 2009 was a relatively benign virus. It's like it's much like coronavirus SARS-2 in that it's very good at keeping people walking around and spreading itself. Okay. Um, but some for some reason that's not well understood, healthy young people, a certain fraction of them, have a positive feedback loop in their uh, immune system called a cytokine storm. And I've seen healthy young people, the cytokine storm took off so bad that they had to have limbs amputated. Um, oh my so, goodness. yeah, it's not just the flu. Don't ever say that to, you know, somebody who's had to have a limb amputated. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. And I wonder, uh, so I'm wondering about when I hear people, you know, again, comparing this to the flu and other things that we're noticing is not just this uh, demographic difference or age difference, but it's that in that population, it becomes a critical issue. And when it becomes a critical issue, are we prepared to deal with that population. And so part of it is it's not just, okay, so it's it's a bad virus and it's not fun to have. But if you have it, not only is the mortality rate higher, but that we don't actually have the beds or the the material, the, re- the resources, either human resources, uh, equipment or bed resources, if people were to if this were to really hit our population. And yeah, and I'm wondering so. if that's the if that's more of a driving force than just saying, eh, it's you know, it's an irritating virus. Yeah, that's really important. Sort of the the rate of growth of our case count. Right now we're tracking Italy it's Iran. Exponential. Yeah. And and um we don't want to do that because you must have heard the big message over the weekend, which is a great one. Public messaging has gotten a lot better, I have to give credit is to flatten the curve, right? right. So yeah. Yeah. we're going to do this social distancing, which people have been taking on pretty well. We'll see how long it lasts. I hope it lasts long enough to flatten the curve because if the curve goes up, spikes, and let's say in the country we have, I th- I'm going to guess at the number, 150,000 respirators, ventilator mm-hmm. machines that help you breathe when you're in severe respiratory disease. And that curve spikes and puts all our senior citizens at the level of 200,000 needing respirators. Doctors have to make very tough choices. They're making those choices in Italy. Right. And some people are just going to die because there's not adequate care. And those respirators are complicated machines. They can't be made overnight. We're ordering some. We have some in strategic stockpiles, but that's what we're trying to avoid. So you staying home, not going to the movies, is going to save some elderly person's life. Right. And so, and it, and I think it's also if if I might we hear 150,000 respirators or 1 million hospital beds, but we forget that people are already using them. Yeah, that it's flu there, season. It's not yeah. it's not yeah. 150 just sitting 150,000 sitting on the shelf. It's we have 150 because we usually use 100 or 120. Like we 
we have the, we, right, if you look at hospitals, so not only am I clergy and I go to hospitals, but both my parents work in hospitals or mm-hmm. have my whole life. They, they're at capacity a lot, not a lot of the time, but there are times when they're already at capacity, which is this time of year often. So it's not like we're just sitting there going, oh, we'll just take one off the shelf. Yeah, my physician colleagues would say the same thing. Um, so, it's, yeah. And so I'm you, assuming as somebody who lives in a pretty rural area that if you start seeing these cases move through those rural communities where there are fewer dots on that terrifying New York Times map. <laughs> terrifying. Right. Um, then then that's particularly where you would start to expect to see death rates really shoot up hmm. because of lack of access to those resources. Because mm-hmm. while there may be 150,000 respirators nationally, I guarantee you, because I wouldn't ask. They're not in Lindsborg. Right. There, there aren't. There aren't that many in Lindsborg, right? Um, but there is, but there are, right? Like nursing homes. Well, I've, I'm looking at some of these questions we're getting from, you know, the, what we put out on Facebook about this. I'm just kind of curious. Yeah. So, uh, one person talked about, you know, transmission with, you know, with the virus being on surfaces and things like that. You know, how does that work? Like, why is it that this particular virus can last this amount of time on this surface, and this virus can only last this amount of time on this surface? Like, how does that happen? Well, there are a lot of variables. I, I don't know all the sort of the physical details, but the, the latest number for those, it was actually one of these preprints, but it looks like it's being peer reviewed for SARS-2 is two days. And there's variables in the physical structure too. Uh, hmm. If it's on a windowsill and getting sun on it, it's going to be less, right? Okay. Influenza is a little less strong. I think it's, it's, it's minutes on surfaces. Okay. But these coronaviruses, uh-huh. maybe it's those spikes. I, I, I would have to, that's a research question. You know? Right. So practically then, I'm a pastor, and mm-hmm. we we canceled services on Sunday, and yeah. we will for the foreseeable future. But, you know, there, was another, there were other groups that met here yesterday, and if one of them was exposed, you're saying that within two days, any surfaces that they touched would just be clean. It's not just the surfaces. It's if your, your tradition uses communion, I would say that. I know how deeply important it is to people, but that's a way you're touching a, you know... <laughs> Every everybody in the congregation's mouth, um, right? Or hands. oh yeah, this is why we stopped services. Yeah, I. But I'm bad, just wondering dad's... if we have to do a thorough uh, clean of of the space before we can reopen, or if we can be sure that if nobody's even here for a couple weeks, that there's it's not an issue. Well, cleaning can't hurt, right? So uh, I, regular cleaning supplies <laughs> help. Um, you know, maybe some maybe UV. Uh, in the office I was in Washington, mm. they had these particle cleaners. Um, and they had cleaned all the surfaces. These cleaners that had ceramic heaters in them that processed huh. the air. I don't know if that's snake oil or not, but they were very proud of them. <laughs> <in> the <office laughs> um, some other people talk about, and this person said this may not be your area, and if it's not, that's fine. But you know, if you get it, once you get it and you start showing the symptoms, I mean, is it just you kind of ride it out? Like, what do you do? Like, what I read is it. You know, let's say you're a healthy young person, right? It is like the worst flu you've ever had. It's Mm. way worse. And one difference between uh, coronavirus, SARS-2 infection, and influenza is it's a dry cough. Oh. So, um, I I don't know if that's better or worse, but you feel worse than than a standard influenza. Okay. Yeah, so if this came from, uh, from bats, presumably... Can we then spread it to other animals? Should we be concerned oh. for our pets or? Yeah. Um, well, there was a case in Hong Kong. I don't think this is widespread, but, you know, one of these Internet stories that somebody's dog is positive. We're not going to go out <laughs> testing all the dogs because we have a shortage. Right. But Can't even test let, me, let me just back up a little bit here. Our work in 08 sort of adjudicating the hypothesis that civets were important does show a small event, not the backbone of SARS evolution out of bats to humans, but a sort of tips of the tree, we would say, event in the markets in Shenzhen, China, of SARS being transmitted between civets and humans reversibly. And the story of MERS um, is even more well-documented of MERS virus being transmitted fundamentally from bats. It looks like in the camel first, that case, and then between camels and humans reversibly. Okay. Mm. And then there are all these sideshows. 
Murs went into hedgehogs, and people, it was in the news cycle, one of these preprints hit the news cycle like a month ago. Pangolins in the market in uh, yeah. Wuhan were important. It's a sideshow. There are SARS-2-like viruses in pangolins, but they did not contribute to the lineage that infected humans. It's a, it was a, a dead-end sideshow, okay? Mm. And we, we, we can adjudicate all that. So in terms of pets, um, yeah, just be careful. I don't think you should be licking your dog or having him lick you in any, in any day, all right? They're full of bacteria. A colleague of mine, a veterinarian, and you're full of bacteria too, right? Yeah. A, a colleague of mine at Ohio State in the vet school, Armando Hoyt, he could document that they would have a MRSA patient. MRSA is methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, a bacterium that infects people and it's one of the major components of hospital-borne infections Hospitals, right yep. yeah they would clear the patient send him home and he would get mercy again from fluffy right <laughs> so it was a constant battle right that, hmm. you know fluffy was a reservoir of MRSA in the patient's own home so yeah just use more sense around your pets please you know well, hey, I I can say I've never licked my dog before. But That's good to know. I'll have well, you her know listen to the podcast. What you see on, on the Don't start. Yeah. get into the the question we had too about being able to stop these types of things too but what do you see as the long-term consequences of this pandemic and also too is there a way to predict how long we think these things can last like this particular one like i know you can't put it down in the day yeah well you know predictions are always dangerous so let's use the information we have right? right sars is a very close relative of it doesn't work as good doesn't infect people as well but SARS emerged in November '02, was gone in July '03, seemingly went extinct. Okay. okay. MERS emerged in 2012 in the Middle East, infected camel herders and camels, but did break out. So there were cases throughout Europe, and then it persisted, and it went human to human in places where they don't have camels in South Korea. For example, in 2015, I was there. We had a case in the in the in the hotel we were in. It was pretty concerning. Right. Uh, never contracted it. The interesting thing was, I was I'm trying to you know write this comprehensive paper about 2,000 coronaviruses, and there was a case of a traveler, a Korean man, returning from Kuwait in 2018, who tested positive for MERS. Oh. So MERS might not be extinct like or still... persisted in okay. pockets, and we're not maybe not sampling all those pockets. What's interesting is you think of Toronto bearing the brunt of SARS-1 in, in North America, and right. we never had many cases in the U.S. at all, a handful. So I've been watching a lot of Canadian news because they're much better prepared for us than this, or at least they have a memory, right? And that's why South Korea is so well prepared. Mm -hmm. They had a very recent memory of a coronavirus outbreak, right? So how long, back to the original question, how long this lasts, this could become like a seasonal flu. Could Flu influenzas don't really go away. They just go to very low levels. You've had a summer cold or summer mm -hmm. influenza. And they go into the southern hemisphere for their winter, right? And H1N1 did come back. We did have H1N1 in 09 and ever since. H1N1-09 strain has been become part of our normal flu. So we might end up in a situation where we have the cold, flu, and coronavirus season. Um, okay. So then, what are the what do you see as long term consequences of this? Well, I hope that we get serious about, you know, constitutive infectious disease preventiveness. And what I mean by constitutive, I mean is all the time. We seem to ramp up the crisis machine and. You know, with SARS, SARS one, we did defeat it. I mean, the World Health Organization declared it gone by summer two thousand three. So it can happen. But look at AIDS; we're doing better. But that's still a pa ongoing pandemic, right? Right. 
So I think what we, we should do is have always be prepared, always be ready, always doing surveillance, everything we can do, always be doing drug development uh, instead of just ramping up a crisis machine and trying to put the genie back into the bottle. You know? Let's yeah. try to not let the genie out of the bottle. As a follow-up to that one, um, maybe a more targeted question, how will we know for this particular outbreak, this particular pandemic, how will we know when daily life goes back to some sense of new normal or normalcy, where you know the majority of people here's hoping the majority of people are self-isolating, right? That that And restaurants are shut downs and schools are shut downs, right? That is not going to be our, our normal. Um, so how will we know? So, and part of the reason I ask that is I have a friend colleague in Long Beach, California, and their school system is shut down till the end of April. And my school system um, is shut down for two weeks, yeah. Till not not even until the end of not even till the end of March. So how will we know when when we're over this hump? Do we have any indications or things that we can look out for? Well, I think government has to balance overpromising with, you know, just getting people to comply. So two weeks seems tolerable. Calling it off right away might get a lot of backlash, right? right. But I would say start, you know, Two weeks ago, we were, we were uh, the message was start to think about what you would do if somebody in your house gets sick or the kids are out of school. What are you going to do uh, to organize your life? Mm-hmm. Now we're at start to think about what if school is called off altogether for the whole year. Mm-hmm. And back to the sort of public health response question, SARS, the one, the technical definition of it being over was no new cases in areas of community transmission for two weeks. And I think Taiwan was the last place released from travel restriction based on that. Uh, Toronto a little bit before that. Um, We, I don't think that's going to happen here. I think we're going to have, if, if I were a betting person, I'm not predicting, I'm just saying that uh, if I were betting on this, I think we're going to have coronavirus SARS-2 back next year. It's going to sweep through, niches that it likes. Maybe it's not even that seasonal. H1N1 2009 emerged in April, raged through the summer. You right. know, remember that. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to say what's going to happen. But I, I think people are going to have to start thinking about this being a new normal. And we can take some solace out of China. What they did is extreme and they leveraged their surveillance state to do it. <laughs> I have a, a good buddy in Shanghai, uh, an American guy who's just built his career in China. And he's been telling me everything they have to do. He has temperature checks at his apartment. He has a pass to come and go from his apartment. They started to go to work after being on, you know, basically quarantined. Even he wasn't sick or anything um, since basically six weeks. Okay, and he started to go back to work, but not full time in early March. And he needs to show one of those barcodes, QR codes, mm-hmm. on his phone. To show that he hasn't been out of, out of the country, that he's complied. Wow. So it's just amazing what they've done in China. We're probably not going to be able to execute that sort of response here. Um, hopefully, people comply, but they are seeing benefits from it. China's a huge country with a huge number of cases. I think they're down to 30 new cases a day now. So wow. they're starting to turn the corner. So there is some. Some indication that this can be defeated. Yeah. yeah. Three months with tremendous measures. Tremendous right. measures. Yeah. Well, yeah. as you said, I mean, the two societies are so different. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Totalitarian like, state. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you had, you know, you had images of, of uh, you know, I saw on the news this morning because of it being um, St. Patrick's Day, you know, massive parties and celebrations in places like yeah. New Orleans and Savannah. Charlotte. I saw Charlotte, the new Charlotte. Weekend. Maybe not massive. We don't do New yeah. Orleans here, but yeah. yeah. But still, I mean, huge yeah. parties and gatherings and stuff like that. People thinking, eh, what's, whatever. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah. Your alcohol needs to be over 65% in order to kill the coronavirus, right? So <laughs> if you're drinking that kind of alcohol, you have other problems. Yeah. Well, it's, you're also bumping into people, you're a little yeah. less careless with, you know, hand eye uh, contact, probably with, with, <laughs> you know, when you're having a good time. Yeah. 
So one of the questions, we, original questions we had is, is how do you, how do we learn from this pie in the sky, you're in charge type mentality, right? You and all the, a lot of the colleagues you work with around the yeah. world. So, so leaders listen to the scientists and the medical experts. Yeah. How can this kind of stuff stop in the future? Or is it even possible to stop this? Well, perfection is not going to be possible, but... The, the fact that those papers have been in the open literature for anybody to, and, and, you know, the movement for these things not to be paywalled has been strong too. Anybody can read them, you know, but it's dense, right? There's a lot more scientific production. So I think every member of Congress, some of them have them, some of them don't, needs a public health, you know, staffer, mm-hmm. right? And those public health staffers need subject matter aspects to say, hey, you know, next time you're in this in in the district, come by and tell me what's on your radar. And we were we were doing that. It hasn't happened so much lately, though. Okay. Um, and I'd like to see that start ha- happen again. But there's probably a hundred ways we can do that. That's one example I've seen slowed down. Right. Mm-hmm. And just the basic pandemic preparedness money, the notion of preparedness is sort of gone. The president, actually, I think it was John Bolton, president, distancing himself from the decision close the office of pandemic preparedness right. in the white house and there are a lot of functional offices in the white house that you know if you're a businessman you wouldn't have right you don't need an office of pandemic preparedness in your you know you know your real estate business but you do need you know to run not in a completely lean government so the government is responsible for things uh, that that are that cost money and you may or may not use you know so right it's like having insurance that you may never use, right? Yeah, car just thinking that. Never use. Yeah. So you may never in your entire life have a car accident. Yeah. But the, it's, it's for the if only. That yeah, that would be good. Right. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Hey Dan, I I really appreciate you coming out and uh, talking with us today. Uh, I cannot even imagine how uh, how many appointments you have, uh, how many people uh, are are calling your phone and texting you at all times. So I really appreciate you carving out an hour here. And I want to respect that hour and um, just wrap this conversation up by asking you if you have any final thoughts for the rest of us as we try to figure out this crazy new world. I I should have prefaced this. I'm not a medical doctor. So if you feel sick, definitely see your doctor. Access testing uh, hopefully be rolled out and we'll have a better, you know, empirical picture of what's going on in their states and uh, listen to the CDC and, and other scientific leaders like Anthony Fauci from the NIA. Uh, he seems to have been taking the lead on this, yeah, mm-hmm. which is good. And the, the fact that he's allowed to now, which is good. And mm-hmm. um, Governor Cuomo has been on media a lot and, and he, he's been, he's been pretty good. Okay. And he's got a tougher problem than we do in Charlotte, that's for sure. You know? Yeah, I've noticed that. Yeah. Today. Okay. Okay, thanks a lot. Okay, yeah. well, thank you so much for, for um, talking with us. It's been real helpful. This has been episode 30 of the Down the Wormhole podcast. Thanks for being on this journey with us. As always, you can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash down the wormhole podcast. And you can find links to articles and further reading in the show notes or at our website at downthewormhole.com. Again, I want to personally thank our guest, Dr. Dan Janis, for taking the time to speak with us. As you can imagine, his life is pretty full right now, and yet he took the time for little old us. That level of commitment to science communication sure makes you a hero in my book, sir. Speaking of science communication, you have a homework assignment due next Wednesday. You need to somehow figure out a way to watch the 1997 award-winning capital S science fiction movie Contact. Ian has actually done some interesting work in the past based on this movie, so get ready for uh, an engaging talk about aliens, agnostics, and why the creator of the universe didn't leave their fingerprints somewhere neutral, like the digits of pi or under a rock or something. And now, instead of leaving you with an out-of-context quote that usually makes Adam sound like a sociopath, I want to simply ask you to do me a favor. You know, much of the world is stuck indoors for what could be months with nothing but bad television and social media to keep them going. So please, be a little extra kind this week, especially on social media. We are all scared about something and angry at someone, 
And the antidote to this toxic combination is kindness. Either that or deleting Facebook and throwing your phone in a river. It's one or the other. It's gotta be. Personally, I'm gonna go with kindness and see how that works out first. So, until next week, spread love, not germs, friends. <laughs>